Well, if you are just joining us, we are in the midst of a series in the Gospel of Mark. So take your Bible and turn to that text in Mark 4 or 5 that was read for us. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you on the round tables in the back. You're welcome. Feel free to get up and go get one uh, now. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said that history isn't just a story of bad people doing bad things. It's quite as much a story of people trying to do good things. But somehow, something goes wrong. Do you ever feel like that? People trying to do good things. You trying to do good things. And your best intentions just aren't realized. Somehow something goes wrong. Well, if that's you here this morning, then this sermon is for you. Let me pray for us. We do ask that you would send out your light and your truth, and they would, like a garrison, fight for our hearts and minds. Deliver us, we pray, for all the deception that we experience, the lies that we tell ourselves and that the world tells us. And may we live in the freedom of the liberated children of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our liberator. Amen. Well, do you know what it's like to get lost in a good book? Some of you have gotten lost in a good book lately this summer. Maybe you're traveling, you're sitting at the beach or wherever, and you just get lost in a good book. And that's how literature works, isn't it? It invites us in to get lost in it, and then somehow we reemerge and things are different. We are different. We see the world differently. That's the power of stories. That's how they work. They invite us in and they transform us. Did you know that over 70% of the Bible is narrative? A story? And like any story, uh, the narrative invites us in to get lost in it and to reemerge and to see the world differently, to be transformed by it. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to enter in. It was morning, and they had been on the sea all night. And what a night it was. Out of nowhere, a storm picked up. It was as if someone flipped it on like a light switch, like someone or something was behind it. The winds rose and the sea began, uh, the boat began to fill up and Jesus' disciples, well, they were in hysterics. They cried out to him and he was asleep in the bottom of the boat. Master, don't you care for us? And he didn't reply to them. At least not directly. Rather, he got up and he said to the sea, Quiet! Be silent! The words, the intonation, the emotion in the master's voice, it sounded very familiar. They had heard it before. 
It's the same thing he said to that man who was possessed with an unclean spirit in the synagogue in Nazareth that day. Quiet. Be silent. Why would Jesus speak to the storm in the exact same way that he spoke to the man with the unclean spirit? His disciples must have wondered. Did he believe that something was going on here that was more than a mere meteorological phenomenon? I recently finished Anthony Doerr's Pulitzer Prize winning All of the Light We Cannot See. The last scene of the book encapsulates the title. An old blind woman is sitting on a bench in Paris with her grandson who is playing a video game. As she thinks about the video game and her son playing his friend who is miles away, her mind drifts off. Dwar writes, Mary Laura imagines the electromagnetic waves tracing into and out of Michelle's machine, bending around just as Etienne used to describe, except now a thousand times more crisscrossed the air than when he lived, maybe a million times more. Torrents of text, conversations, tides of cell conversations, of television programs, of emails, vast networks of fiber and wire interlaced above and beneath the city, passing through buildings, arching between transmitters and metro tunnels, between antennas atop buildings, from lampposts with cellular transmitters in them, commercials for chlorophore and Evian and pre-baked toaster pastries flashing into space and back to earth again. I'm going to be late, and maybe we should get reservations and pick up avocados. And what did he say? And 10,000 I miss you's, and 50,000 I loves you's, hate mail and appointment reminders and market updates, jewelry ads, coffee ads, furniture ads, flying invisible over the warrens of Paris, over the battlefields and tombs, over the Rhine, over the Belgian and Denmark of the scarred and ever-shifting landscapes we call nations. And then Dora writes, And so is it so hard to believe that souls might also travel those paths. His point, I think, is there is a lot in the world that we cannot see. A lot more going on than what is visible to us, than to our perception. That there is a world behind the world, that there are deeper realities that we often do not comprehend. Be silent, Jesus said to the storm. Why would Jesus speak to the storm in the same way that he spoke to a man who was possessed by an unclean spirit, did he believe that behind them both was the same reality? Could it be? 
that there is more going on here than meets the eye. That Mark is saying that there are forces that are bigger than the sea at play. And Jesus is stronger still. Well, anyway, it's now morning. And verse 1 tells us that they are crossing over to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, that might not mean much to us, but it meant a lot to those in the first century world. Because they were passing from Judea to the east side of Galilee, to the region that was, well, a turbulent region. We know it now as the Golan Heights, that center of contested territory that plays out in all the peace talks or unpeaceful talks that have happened. But it's been a contested territory all along. You see, back then, this was the Greek and Roman cultural center in an otherwise Semitic territory. In other words, where the disciples were going with Jesus that morning was straight into the heart of unclean Gentile territory with its pagans and its pigs. And they are crossing the sea. When they get there, verse 2 says that they meet a man with an impure spirit. And verse 3 says that though alive, he dwelt in death. He lived among the tombs. And he was totally helpless, verse 4 tells us, that no one and nothing could help him. That he was actually destroying himself, verse 5. Day and night among the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And he rushes up and he meets Jesus. And then when he meets Jesus, Jesus asks him his name and he replies, Legion. That's a curious name for a demon. You know, Legion was the name of a Roman army unit. And so the disciples, they would have been shocked. Shocked not because they met a man with an unclean spirit so much. I'm sorry, not shocked because they met legion. They expected to meet a legion. You see, you have to understand their world in order to enter in. These are Jews. And Jews understood that a long time ago, because of their sin, they had been handed over to foreign powers with their foreign gods, the foreign enemies who had invaded them. First it was the Babylonians, and then it was the Syrians, and then the Assyrians, and then the Greeks, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and now it's the Romans. But they, in, the, in the Rome, they were the problem. They brought in their unclean idols. They tempted the Jews to worship these unclean idols, to sacrifice pigs. That's what happened during the Maccabean period, or only a hundred years before pigs in the temple to these foreign gods. You see, Rome was the problem. But they believed that God had not given up on them. That one day, someday, he would send a Messiah, a king. And that king would deliver them from all, the foreign, all their foreign enemies. He would deliver them against Rome. He would go and do battle against the Romans, he would face the legion. 
And so when they arrive in Roman territory with the Messiah, they are not surprised to meet a legion. But what they would have been surprised about is that that legion was not composed of Roman soldiers, but of Satan's minions. You see, it's as if, it's as if Mark is saying to us, there's more going on here than meets the eye. There are forces that are bigger than the Romans at play. That the true enemy is not the Romans, but the force behind the Romans. The true enemy is the demons. Ephesians 6.12 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil. And that's what Mark is saying as well. But as moderns, let's be honest, we have a hard time believing that. I mean, demons. But evidently, first century Jews had a hard time believing it too. That's the point of the story. To convince them that the Romans aren't the real problems, but that the demons are the real problems. They wanted to put the blame on what they could see. And Mark is saying, no, there's more going on here. Yeah, but we have science, so they may have had a hard time believing it, but we have an even harder time believing it because we have science and we know how the world works and science tells us how the world works. But does it really? I mean, I didn't know that science actually said anything. Like scientists say a lot of things, but science doesn't really say anything, right? And because of science, do we really know how all the world works? We certainly know a lot of how the world works, but we, do we really know all of how the world works? I mean, you may say, I, I just I can't believe in unclean spirits. But if you don't believe in unclean spirits, then you probably don't believe in spirits. Which means that you and I are just Petri dishes. We are material we are chemicals and cells. But do chemicals and cells believe in anything? So that doesn't seem very rational. And besides, what if it's true? What if there really is light and darkness that we cannot see? Invisible spiritual forces, currents of evil, like the magnetic currents in Marilor's vision. You say, well, wait. I mean, how can an educated, modern person believe in demonic, spiritual, evil forces? But I'd like to turn the question on you. How can you not? It was 1940, a year before, at the age of 32, W.H. Alden had published his complete works. That takes a lot of brass to publish your complete works at 32, right? 
I, I, I could do that. I'm not sure people would read them. But actually, Auden, they read them and they lauded them. He was also one of the champions of Marxist ideology. In 1940, in Manhattan, he went into a movie. It was in a district in Manhattan that was mainly composed of German immigrants. On the screen, before the movie, they showed clips of the war, the front lines. They showed clips of Germany fighting Poland. And German people in that theater in Manhattan stood up and they started cheering, Kill them! Kill them! Kill the Poles! Auden reflected on that, and he walked out of the theater, and he said, that day, that day, I disbelieved my atheism. Because atheism and my materialism could not make sense of the evil that I experienced, of these friends and neighbors and decent people doing such indecent acts. And he became a Christian. Which is interesting considering that most of us think that evil is a reason to disbelieve Christianity. But for Auden, no, evil was actually the thing that proved that Christianity was true. That there are forces that are going on, that there is more light and darkness than we can see. Well, here's the question. How do you make sense of the power that evil can exert over our lives if you don't believe in spiritual forces of evil? I mean, in verses 3 through 5, we find a man who is completely overcome by the power of evil. And I would suggest to you that it's just a picture of the power that we are all under to some degree or another. It is one concrete instantiation of it. You see, the Christian view of sin is that before we're ever into sin, sin is into us. That it's the condition in which we live in, in which we dwell. And that that condition actually takes hold of us. We don't really have a lot of modern examples in our culture for how to talk about it. But the closest thing that we get is actually how addicts talk about their addiction. See, addicts, they get a Christian understanding of sin. That there's a power outside of them that comes inside of them and somehow mysteriously not only compels them and controls them, but strangely becomes part of them. And that's actually the dynamic we see in verses 10 and 12. Look at it. In verse 10, we find that he, that is the man, begged him, Jesus, he begged Jesus, earnestly not to send him out of the country. But in verse 12, it says, they begged him. They begged Jesus, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Well, what's going on here? We have he and then they. What's happening with the pronouns? See, there's a confluence between the demonic forces and the man himself. Like there's a confluence between evil in our lives and our own evil acts. Paul describes this struggle well in Romans 7 when he describes a person sold in slavery and bondage to sin. He says, For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Wait, I do it, but not me, but sin does it, but I do it. You see, there's a confluence between the power of evil and the power of the self. And it is an awful situation. The situation that Paul describes. And can you not at some point in your life relate to it? And so Paul concludes, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, we feel like we can't relate to this man being influenced by evil forces. But are we so different? I mean, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been susceptible to anger or bitterness? Like nursing a grudge that you want to stop nursing, but you just can't stop nursing, and you keep thinking about it, and you tell yourself not to, but you do it more and more, and it... Well, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That anger makes us susceptible to the demonic forces of evil. What about arrogance? Do you ever struggle with that? Like thinking that you're better than other people, looking down on them, sizing them up, comparing them? I mean, none of us ever do that, right? Did you know that 1 Timothy 3, 6 and 7, James 4, 6 and 7, and 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9, all say that arrogance is something that makes us liable to the demonic forces of evil? What about self-control? You have... Do you ever feel like you can master that? Legalism, are you prone to that? Rule-keeping, false doctrine, these are all things that the New Testament attributes and associates with the demonic forces of evil. See, we don't feel like we can relate, but we can relate. We know what this is like. And even when we are get control of ourselves, we're still not in control. I mean, you know, you give up drinking, and what happens? You start smoking. You give up smoking, and you start eating. You give up eating, and you start working out, and then you keep working out, and then you can't stop working out, and you incessantly work out over and over and over and over again, and, and pretty soon, self-control starts controlling you. Do you ever, have you ever met anyone who has been so self-disciplined that discipline dehumanized them? That was me in college. I was so self-disciplined that it's like I started turning into a robot, unable to connect. Are we so different? Ernst Kaseman, the towering New Testament German giant of a scholar, said, Persons who imagine that they are autonomous and emancipate themselves are always the creators of idols. Let me repeat that. Persons who imagine that they are autonomous and emancipate themselves are always the creators of idols. That is, if we think that in our own strength, in our own power, that we can overcome, that we can will ourselves into power, then what ends up happening is that we end up enslaved to something else that we have created. You see, an idol 
An idol is anything that we worship other than God. And most of us might not think that we're idolaters, but think about this. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary, it defines worship as being devoted to or an adoration of some person or thing. So, you might not consider yourself an idolater, but let me ask you, are you devoted to or an adoration of some person or thing? Of course you are. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's necessary to be human because we're all made to worship God and to live for Him. And if we don't, we will worship or live for something. But here's the problem. Those things that we live for, they start to control us. And the late David Foster Wallace, he got this. He got the problem. He didn't get the solution. He said, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexuality, allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you'll need more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. That's why, like, 99% of postgraduate students and young professors struggle with imposter syndrome. You worship these things, and then they get a hold of us, and then they destroy us. I was um, talking about the TV show Netflix, Chef's Table. It goes through these world-class chefs and tells their story. Someone was... Um, watching it and talked about it with me, and they, they noted how in every one of these chef's stories, there's a point where they stop and they do a little reflection, and the reflection is, is basically this. They look at their life, and they're kind of like, yeah, I became a great chef, but it destroyed my family. It destroyed my relationships. I'm, I'm estranged from my children. I've been divorced two times over. My health has failed. They started worshiping food and work, and food and work destroyed them. Are we so different from this man? You see, this man is simply one concrete illustration of the slavery that I would suggest we all experience in this condition called sin. And he's not the only manifestation of slavery in this text. Which brings us to verses 12, 10 through 12. The demons come up and they beg Jesus to send them into the pigs that are on the hill. And Jesus, verse 13, he does. He, he permits them to go into the pigs and then they run off the bank and they run into the lake and they're drowned. Verse 14, the herdsmen, very concerned about this, and they're like, this is crazy. They run back to the townspeople. They tell the townspeople in verse 14, the townspeople come back to see what had happened. And what they see, verse 15, is a man clothed in his right mind. And they also heard about the pigs. And how do they respond? How would you respond? I mean, here's this man who was able to cast out the demonic force that nobody was able to overcome. I mean, I know how we would all respond. We would fall down and worship him and say, stay with us, be with us, rule us, be king over us. You are our liberator, our redeemer. And that's how they responded, right? Verse 17. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. What on earth? 
They pled with Jesus to leave their region. Why would they do that? Well, 2,000 pigs just went into the lake, and that's economy. That's worth a lot of money. But still, I mean, no matter how much they're worth, I mean, I, I, I like to cook pigs. Some of you know that. I bring it up like every other sermon because it's a very central part of my life, right? I really like bacon. Any, any other people like bacon here? We like bacon, right? Uh, and so, so pigs, like a, a pig, if you want to do a whole hog, it's like 400 bucks. 400 times 2,000. We have some ma- mathematicians in here. You can help me later because I'll get it wrong. But that's a lot of money. But still, I mean, it's a lot of money, but is it worth like sending Jesus out of town? The liberator, the redeemer? I mean, that's crazy. What would possess a people? What would possess a people to be more willing to save their bacon than have their Lord? What would possess them? Mark is trying to tell us what will possess them. That there is more going on here than meets the eye. That there are forces bigger than the economy at play. What would possess a people? I think it possessed many Americans in the last election. Who would rather save their bacon than have their Lord. See, our powers are not against flesh and blood. So don't hear what I'm not saying. You say, Kyle, are, 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 you, are, you, are you saying that you have a beef with this administration or the last administration? No, I don't. I really don't. My beef is not with this administration. My beef is not with the last one or the one before that. My beef is with the powers and the principalities that actually take hold of administrations. That's my beef. That's Mark's beef. It's not with the Romans. It's with the powers behind Rome. See, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against powers that, it's, that instantiate themselves in flesh and blood. Why do you think the demons said, send us into the pigs? Because the powers don't float about in the air with red capes and hats, they actually instantiate themselves in people, in institutions, in things, in nations. That's how evil works. It has no ontology, no ontological grounding on its own. It has to instantiate itself in other things. Like Leslie Newbigin said, the principalities and powers are real. They're invisible, and we cannot locate them in space and they do not exist as if disembodied entities floating above the world or lurking within it. They meet us as embodied and visible and tangible realities, people, nations, and institutions. And they are powerful. They are created in Christ and for Christ. Their true end is to serve Him. And some do. But not all. So Wait a second, Kyle. Are you saying that behind my law firm or the city council or 
or educational institution that I serve? Are you saying that there are spiritual forces at work, that they participate in networks of spiritual power? Mm -mm. I would never be so bald or bold as to say something like that. Mark is saying that. I would never say that on my own. Mark is saying that. And behind Mark is Peter, who had a firsthand experience when twice he was called out, once by Jesus and once by Paul, as participating in the demonic forces of evil. Get behind me, Satan. To the apostle. And if it can happen to him, then it can happen to us and institutions and places, and people, and things, and to the church at Philippi, and the angel that is above it. There is a world beyond the world. There is more than what meets the eye. That's what Mark is saying, that there is always more going on than meets the eye, that for good or ill, people like this man, and nations like Rome, and the institutions like the church at Galatia, and that businesses like the pig farming industry participate in unseen spiritual power structures. And Mark is reminding us that of that, and Mark is reminding us that Jesus is stronger still. It's interesting, verse 13, if you think about it. I mean, it's kind of bizarre. Jesus sins the demons into the pigs, then 2,000 of them rush down to, through a bank, and then they are drowned into the sea. What's going on here? Well, think about it. Have you, can you remember a time when an army under the control of false gods rushes into a sea and is drowned? In horse and rider, he drowned in the sea. See, Mark is trying to send our minds back to the greatest event in Israel's history, the Exodus. But he is saying there is a new Exodus coming about. And it's not leading a people from Egypt to a promised land. It is leading people from death to life. And it's not the Egyptians. It is the demonic forces that they are being rescued from. And here, Jesus, he is their liberator. He is the one who sets the captives Free. That's what redemption is. To, redemption, to redeem something is to liberate it from slavery. And only he has the power to do it. But redemption, it always costs. Redemption's costly. When the slave is on the stand, you actually have to pay for them. But, but this doesn't look costly. But it was costly. See, Jesus, he is buying them on credit. And he knows it. It's why when we get to the end of Mark's gospel, the climax of Mark's gospel, we see Jesus naked, isolated, outside the town among the tombs, shouting incomprehensible things as he is torn apart on the cross by the standard of Roman torture and as his skin is writ with the stones of lashes. And Mark is saying something. There's more here going on than meets the eye. That there are forces bigger than political leaders, 
or religious leaders or anything else. That there on the cross, Jesus was doing battle with the spiritual forces of evil. You see, Colossians 2.15 says that the cross is not just the place where Jesus takes on our sin. The cross is the place where Jesus takes on our demons. And he let them do their worst to him. And in so doing, he overcame them. F.F. Bruce puts it like this. As he was suspended there, bound hand and foot, to the wood in apparent weakness, the powers and principalities imagined that they had him at their mercy, flung themselves upon him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their assault without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of all the armor in which they trusted, and held them aloft in his mighty, outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. Paul writes, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives us the victory. He sets us free from all the forces of evil. He is the great liberator and only him. Well, We enter back in the story in verse 18, and there's this man. He has been liberated. He is clothed, and he is in his right mind. And what does that look like? Verse 18, he wants to be with Jesus. You see, to not be in your right mind, to be under the control of the demonic powers of evil, it is to cast out the one who could save you. But to be in your right mind, that's to want to be with Jesus, communion with him, worship of him, to be with his people, to come to his table. That's what it looks like to be liberated, to be healed. But Jesus, he doesn't let him stay with him. In verse 19, he says, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done with you and how he has had mercy on you. And then verse 20 says, So the man went away, and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. That is, amongst the Greeks, the pagans, the ones who rejected Jesus. Jesus sends the man back, and then what is their response? And the people were all amazed. And it's as if Mark is saying to us, there is more going on here than meets the eye. That there is a power that my liberated disciples have that is not apparent on the surface. And then even those who rejected Jesus, Jesus sends back into with his grace. And they come to him. Because, as Martin Luther put it in his hymn, his truth will triumph through us. And so this is not a reason to avoid the world. This is not a reason to escape. This is not a reason to to, um, put ourselves in little corners of Christian ghettos. No. This is a reason to go out into law, into politics, into education, and into the church, and to proclaim the liberating power of Jesus Christ who sets us free.
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.